So we gather to celebrate our risen Lord. About 2,000 years ago, he was in the tomb, and it looked like all hope was lost. And then what? The stone rolled away, and Jesus emerged. And now we celebrate because if he rose, we can rise, and we have hope in him. But we as Christians would be a bit naive and a bit foolish if we didn't just pause and acknowledge the fact that what we believe and what we're celebrating here today is a, a bit crazy, If you told me that your friend rose from the dead, I would think you're crazy. So we should just pause and realize what we do here today is we celebrate, and every Sunday we celebrate something that has no scientific data to back it up, right? Like there's no scientific explanation for the resurrection. What we're celebrating today is a miracle. And I have just bet my life on a miracle, as I hope you have as well. Um, I think it's a good bet. I think there's lots of reasons to take that step of faith and believe in the resurrection. Many years ago, a man named Lee Strobel sat down to figure that out for himself. And then he wrote a book. He's written a number of books, but one of them is our gift to you as you leave today. It's called The Case for Easter. And I'm actually going to let Lee Strobel explain the book and the concept in his own words. Now understand this. He recorded this video in 2019 when Easter fell on April Fool's Day. So here's Lee Strobel in his own words. And when I was an atheist and legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, I would have smirked at the fact that Easter this year falls on April Fool's Day. Because back then, I thought that anyone would have to be a fool to think that Jesus literally rose from the dead. One day, my wife gave me the news that she'd become a Christian. And so I decided to take my journalism training and legal training and debunk the resurrection of Jesus. So I spent two years of my life analyzing the historical data. And what I found really shocked me. I recounted in my book, The Case for Miracles. First of all, I found that there's no dispute among scholars that Jesus was dead after being crucified. Uh, The famous atheist New Testament scholar, Gerd Ludeman, says it's historically indisputable that he was dead. The Journal of the American Medical Association says that based on the historical and medical evidence that Jesus was clearly dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Second, we have early reports of the resurrection of Jesus. Reports that come so quickly you can't just write them off as being a legend. In fact, we have one report of the resurrection, including named eyewitnesses, that has been dated back by scholars to within months of the death of Jesus. Friends, that is historical gold. Third, we have the empty tomb. And I found that even the opponents of Jesus implicitly conceded that the tomb of Jesus was empty. And then fourth, we have nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. Friends, that is an avalanche of historical data. And then we have seven ancient sources inside and mostly outside the New Testament that confirm that the disciples lived lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation that Jesus had risen. Why were they willing to do that? Because they heard a rumor that he'd risen? No, because they were there. They touched him. They ate with him. They talked with him. They knew the truth. And knowing the truth, they were willing to proclaim it, even despite the suffering they endured. Friends, I spent two years investigating this evidence. And it came down to one day when I reviewed it all and I thought, you know what? Based 
on the historical data, my verdict is that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. And that's the moment that I decided to confess my sin, to turn from that, to receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for me on the cross. And at that moment, I became a child of God. Some people have a rush of emotion at that moment. I didn't. You know what I had? I had the rush of reason. Because the resurrection of Jesus is not some April Fool's Day joke. It is a historical reality based not on mythology or make-believe or wishful thinking, but a solid foundation of historical truth. So if that uh, intrigues you, take a copy. And if, you're, if someone has come to mind, oh, they need that book, then take two or take three, as long as you're willing to give those away that are a gift to you uh, today. Uh, one of the eyewitnesses that Lee Strobel just referenced would have been Peter. Peter was one of the 12 disciples. He was a friend of Jesus. And he wrote two books in our scriptures, First and Second Peter. And so what I want us to do this morning is look at the writings he gave us in First Peter chapter 1. I've already read, read for you First Peter chapter 1 verse 3, where Peter testifies to the resurrection. But he continues and he does it again in uh, verses 8 through 11, or I'm sorry, 18 through 21. I'd like to read those for you at this time. First Peter chapter 1 verses 18 to 21. It says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. What Peter is saying as we just sort of walk through these verses together this morning is he opens up with this statement of you should know that you've been ransomed from the futile ways that have been inherited from your forefathers. Here's another way of saying the same thing. If you read it out of the NIV, it would say you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. So whichever way you prefer, I kind of like the NIV's translation there better. I have better handle on what it means, but it's saying that you were redeemed from a futile way, from an empty way of life, or you were ransomed from a futile way of life. Now, redeemed is this word that you use in Scripture a number of times, and it's the idea of uh, there's, if you can imagine, there's slaves standing on a slave a trading block. And what God did is he stepped into that slave market and he purchased you off of that slave block and he brought you home and he unleashed your chains and he brought you into his home, his mansion, and you made you his son or daughter. That's what redeemed means. He purchased you, brought you home, gave you a new identity. He redeemed you from a futile way of life. The word ransom might actually be more familiar to our vocabulary because we watch movies and we see people who get kidnapped or we see it in the news. And so what Peter's saying, or you could translate his words this way. Well, what Jesus did was he ransomed you. He went to your kidnapper, sin and death, and he paid the ransom from that futile way of life so that you could come and live with him. But Peter's saying, listen, it, he didn't pay the ransom with silver or gold. He paid the ransom with his precious blood. And then Peter gives us an illustration. He says, the precious blood like a lamb without blemish or spot. So why does Peter decide to illustrate Jesus' precious blood with that of a lamb? 
Well, it's valuable for us to highlight this illustration, particularly because two days ago was Good Friday, when we remember Jesus' death on the cross. But two days ago on Friday at sunset, when we gathered to celebrate his death, our Jewish friends were gathering to remember Passover. And not every year, but sometimes Passover and Good Friday overlap. And this last Friday was one of those. So if we turn our attention back to Exodus and we look at the passage where, where the Passover is explained, let me remind you of what it says. It talks about how the children of Israel were living in bondage and slavery in Egypt. But God looked down and he wanted to set his people free from slavery. And so he sent Moses, right? And Moses says, let my people go. And then Pharaoh says, no. And so they send 10 plagues. And the 10th plague is the one that changes Pharaoh's mind. And that 10th plague is that the Lord himself will descend over the land of Egypt. And all those who are in their homes, the firstborn will die. But, God says, I will spare the firstborn. I will pass over the home of the firstborn who has put blood of a lamb without blemish on the doorposts of their homes. So what Peter is saying is he's saying, listen, you've been redeemed, ransomed from a feudal way of life. Just like the children of Israel were back in Egypt, they were in a feudal, empty way of life. It was called slavery. And in the same way that a precious lamb's blood over the doorpost saved them and set them free to go into the promised land, in the same way Jesus' blood is precious. And if his blood is over the mantle of your life, then you will be set free as well. You will be redeemed. That's what Peter is trying to capture. That's the illustration he's tapping into. That Jesus is the lamb. He he was without spot, no blemish. That means he was sinless. And he was that lamb that purchased our freedom. Now, Peter doesn't use the words like slavery. He uses the words empty way of life that's been passed down to us from our ancestors. So we pause and ask the question, okay, well, what is this empty way of life that's been passed down to us from our ancestors? An easy illustration for that would be, well, okay, what's an empty way of life? Well, okay, here's low-hanging fruit, right? We could say it's drugs and alcohol. We could say, okay, that's an empty way of life. If your way of life is going to be that of a drug addict or an alcoholic, we can all agree, we look on that life and say, listen, that's an empty life. But that's too easy of an illustration because then what we do is most of us in the room just go home and we give that application to a friend or someone else we know. But we need it more personal. So there's an empty way of life that you're familiar with as well. We just got to figure out what that is. For Peter's audience, it was probably, their empty way of life was probably like um, uh, falling into the trap of thinking that they had to follow the law in order to be accepted by God. That was probably the audience that Peter was talking to. So they said, we look to the law of God. Uh, You shall not uh, take the Lord's name in vain. You shall not steal. Thou shall not commit adultery. Thou shall not lie. The law. So his audience was probably falling into the trap of saying like, I want God to accept me. So I'm going to keep the law. And Paul or Peter is saying like, oh, no, 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 no. That's that's an empty way of life. And, And Jesus came to redeem you from that empty way of life. You can't keep the law, but Jesus did keep the law. He was, the, he, was the, he was free of blemish and spot. He was the lamb who kept the law perfectly. And if you trust in his uh, precious blood over your life, then God will pass over you. He'll look down, and certainly you haven't kept the law. But he'll see the precious blood of Jesus over your life, and he will pass over you. That's the good news that Peter wants us to see. You don't have to live that empty way of life. You can live covered in Jesus' precious blood. 
It's an empty way of life to say, I will obey so that God will accept me. The good news is saying, I am accepted by God. Therefore, I will obey him. I tried to think of a good illustration for this because I was thinking about it. Keeping the law is good. That's why I think it's a better illustration than saying like, oh, as a drugs and alcohol abuse, that's an empty way of life. Certainly. But you know, there are empty ways of life that are full of good things. So I'm thinking, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good illustration for you this morning, and I felt like a light bulb went on. And so I, uh, you have to put up with illustrations for me. That means you have to put up with my idiosyncrasies and my ha- hobbies and interests. So here is the illustration for you. Uh, I, don't, I think it's an original, but we'll have to Google it later. Um, an empty way of life is like this. This is a camping shower. So if you go backpacking or maybe you like to go camping as a family, uh, we love to be in the outdoors as my family. And so this is something I'd always wanted. And this gave me an excuse to buy it. Um, a camping shower. So this is what you do. Maybe you only have access to a, a river, so you fill it up. and then, uh, Or maybe you're at a campsite and you have a spigot, but no access to a shower. So you fill this cavity up, and it'll fill up with water. And then you go to your campsite, you find a tree or something, and then you hang this up. And then you turn a, a knob here, and then you have a shower. It's a camping shower. It's wonderful. Here, I think it's an empty way of life, so track with me here. Here's how it works as an empty way of life. The water is always going to be flowing out of it, and you're always putting water into it, right? So let's think of, uh, of, the, of Peter's audience, right? I'm going to keep the law. Well, that's good. It's good to take a shower, isn't it? It's good not to lie. So you say, I'm going to, I'm going to try my best not to lie. I'm going to try my best not to steal. And every day you're dumping water into the shower, and every day it's running out. Every day you've got to put more into it. And Peter's saying, that's an empty way of life. See, it's good. It's good to put water in. It's good for water to come out. But what I think Jesus does is he says, listen, this is where you got to hang with me here. Jesus says, come on inside my house and let me show you indoor plumbing. <laughs> indoor plumbing is the gospel. This is an empty way of life. Jesus says, come on and let, stand in this shower and, and turn those two knobs. Now watch what happens. It never ends. My daughter's tested it. <laughs> it never ends. It constantly flows. His goodness and grace, all these good things will constantly flow down on you. So it's good things. It's good things you're putting in and it's good things you're experiencing, but it's an empty way of life. For the rest of your life, you're going to be filling it up and striving as hard as hard as you can to keep it full. And it's just going to keep draining. And Jesus says, just stand under my grace and goodness and I will pour it out on you. So it's good things can be an empty way of life. I think that we should consider the fact that it's possible that the American dream is an empty way of life. It can be. Whatever, whatever that is, you close your eyes and you think, you know what, here's, here's my American dream. It's the perfect house with a white picket fence and, and my kids are playing in the yard and there's two car garage, maybe a four car garage. Maybe there's a boat in the driveway and we're all happy and we're all healthy and we're all successful. And it's the American dream and it can be an empty way of life. The Pew Research Center did research back in 2017. They gave out a survey to people. They said, what gives your life meaning? Where do you find meaning in life? And the Americans that answered it said this. Well, 69% said that they find meaning in their families. 34% said they find meaning in their career. 23% said they find their meaning in life through their money. Coming in at a strong fourth place, faith and spirituality with 20% of that, 5% are Christians. 
19% say friends, then there's activities and hobbies, then there's health. Now, just for clarity, let me just say this. I agree, my family gives me great meaning. And my career gives me meaning, and my faith gives me meaning, and my hobbies, and my, and my money, all those things give me meaning. And I actually think it honors God that we find meaning from our families, that we find meaning in our hobbies, in our careers. I think that is God's good gift to us, and it honors Him when my family gives me meaning, okay? But it's not meaning that was meant to fill me up. So if this is my family, and it's filling me up, yeah, that's natural. God wired it that way. When you pour good things in, and good things go out, but it's an empty way of life. And so then you say, well, what happens when the family members don't call? What happens when the kids rebel? What happens when your boss no longer appreciates you? What happens when your hobbies no longer give you any significance? What happens when the money runs low or your health runs out? And you got nothing. You got nothing to pour in. And then you start to feel that emptiness. Now, we're really good at this. We're busy people. And if we don't let that emptiness set in very long, we love to distract ourselves. But in quiet moments and still moments, sometimes we sense it. Oh, wow, I think I might be living an empty way of life. And the invitation of Jesus is truly to come to living water that never runs out. It is constant. And when your friend betrays you, and there's just nothing to pour in, Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And when your family doesn't call, or your family lets you down, Jesus will fill you up. He is your heavenly Father. And whenever you sense that, that you need to, to feel things that you're not feeling, he will, he will flood you with peace and comfort and joy. Peter's saying he died, he spent his precious blood to redeem you from an empty way of life. I don't know when you need to talk to God about this topic. Maybe, I kind of hope it's in the shower. This comes to you again. And maybe the next time you're in the shower, you ought to pray to God. And if you need to, you might want to admit to Him that you're living an empty way of life at times and, and acknowledge to Him that you trust in Him, His death on the cross, His shed blood, His precious blood, and tell Him, I don't want to live an empty life. I want to live in Your graces. I want You to fill me up. I don't want to have to look to these other good things to fill me. I want You to fill me and shower me in Your blessings. And be my savior and I commit to you. Pray that can be a prayer for you. And it can come to you even in the shower. I want to close our time though with the resurrection. Because that's what Peter does in his thoughts here. Peter goes on to say, God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory. Before he got there, though, he did say, like, this is for those who believe in God. And he says that God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. What? What? So that you would put your faith and hope in God. So we have to be people that trust and put our faith and hope in the risen Savior. That's why God raised him from the dead. So that we give him glory. So that we would put our faith in him. The resurrection. And in the resurrection, God gave Jesus glory. Other translation is, God glorified Jesus. Now, let's all just admit that if I asked you right now and put a microphone in your hand to define glory for the audience or define what does it mean to glorify God, most of us would get caught flat-footed on that one. I know I would. 
particularly if a four-year-old asks you the question. And so let's, let's define a word that we use a lot and throw around a lot in religious spaces. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, if you look up glory in the dictionary, just the regular dictionary, it says high renown or honor that's won by notable achievements. It's magnificence or great beauty. And so quite simply, we don't have to complicate this. The glory of God is his majesty and his magnificence. To say that we need to glorify God is to say that we need to yeah, give him greatness. We need to tell him he's great. He's great. He's glory. His, his majesty is holiness. We read through scripture and you're like, oh, wow. That's to give him glory. Now, John Piper, he's a pastor, and he actually does a great job of defining what it means to glorify God. And we're going to post a link to the video and online so you can hear him in his own words, but I'm going to try and give you his words at this time. He's helpful in reminding us that glorify does not mean to make glorious. You can't make God glorious. You can't give God more glory than he already has. Nor can God give Jesus any more glory. Because remember the Trinity, right? It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all God. You can't... God is infinitely glorious. He cannot be given any more glory. He is glorious. So glorify does not mean to make glorious. So that means glorify is a different word than beautify. We can beautify things. If you go in our foyer over there, I think we have beautified our foyer. We have added beauty to it. So you can beautify things, but... By, give, by, by inserting more beauty, but you don't glorify things by adding glory to them. So then what are you supposed to do? What did, what did God do when he gave Jesus glory? Well, I think there's three words we can latch on to. We can see things as glorious, we can savor as glorious, and we can celebrate as glorious. So when God glorified Jesus in the resurrection, he helped us see Jesus as glorious. We helped us see the risen Savior, see that there's life after death, see that he is victorious over sin and death. And he, when he glorified Jesus in the resurrection, it helped us savor Jesus and enjoy him and admire him in greater ways. And then it, it how we celebrate him as glorious. That's what we're doing today. We are celebrating the glory of God because of his resurrection, because God glorified Jesus in the resurrection. We celebrate as glorious. I'll try to illustrate this idea um, with this. I grew up in, in Kansas City, a suburb of Kansas City. And uh, growing up, I remember on two occasions, we would drove uh, to, to Colorado to the Rocky Mountains. And so, if you've ever done that, I-70 is a long road that is not similar at all to any of the roads in Pittsburgh with its curviness and mountains and beauty. They're just a long, straight road. Um, it's, it's just awful. <laughs> and then they trick you, and then there's this point where you cross over into the state line of Colorado, and then you're like, oh, the Rocky Mountains are in Colorado, and now I'm in Colorado. And then just, it's a couple more hours. It's just very disappointing. But eventually, you see the Rocky Mountains on the horizon, and they're glorious. And then you get closer, and you see their glory all the more. The question for us this morning is, how do I glorify the Rocky Mountains? How can I glorify them? They're, I can't add to their height. I can't add to their beauty. How do I glorify the Rocky Mountains? Well, I, I get closer. 
I get as close as I possibly can. I keep pursuing the Rocky Mountains until finally I am in them. And as I am in them, I can appreciate the greatness and the splendor and the glory that they possess. And as I see their glory up close and I appreciate it through my sight and through all I can see, it's just so glorious. And then I get out of my car and I savor the glory of the Rocky Mountains. And I walk on the trails and I can touch and I can feel the Rocky Mountains and they can soak into my soul. And I am giving them glory as I savor them. And then I celebrate the Rocky Mountains and I tell other people about the glory that I have seen. And I break out into song he was born in the summer of his no no rocky mountain high colorado john denver fans no okay thank you thank you rocky mountain high it's it's, he's he's giving glory to the rocky mountains you can it's a great song and so it is and so it is that god gives jesus glory And so it is that you and I are called to do with our lives is to give God glory. He, God raised Jesus from the dead so that we would put our faith and our hope in him and by doing so give God glory. That's what we do. And so what I hope for you today on this Easter Sunday is as, as you see the flowers, as you see nature and you see the glory in what God has created, then as we see his glory, we give him glory, don't we? We see the glory in, in children and their joy on Easter. We see the glory in a, in a friendship, in a hug that we're exchanged or a smile that it's given. And in all of it, we give God glory. And then we savor his glory as we experience it and enjoy it through the peace that passes all understanding, through the joy that comes only in knowing Jesus. And then we celebrate his glory as we tell others about it, as we sing songs and we celebrate who he is and what he has done. That's what we're called to do in our lives, is to give him glory. And God gave Jesus glory, and we give him glory. And forever we will glorify our risen Savior. It is through his precious blood that he has redeemed us from an empty way of life. And he has called us into faith in his precious blood of his Son. And that we then can give Jesus glory just like God did through the resurrection.